welcome once again to the BV Magazine podcast. As always, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode two for February 2024. So hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, I talk to journalist and writer Sam Peters about growing concerns around concussion in the sport of rugby and the re-emergence of the evasion-based game. And we'll be hearing from the CPRE's Dark Skies advisor, Richard Miles, about how the Blackmore Vale might have got its name, and also about the issue of light pollution. And we hear about how Richard Wakeley never intended to follow in his father's footsteps as an undertaker, but has now become the fourth generation of the family business. And Rob Nolan is someone who particularly likes dark skies since he's an astrophotographer whose astonishing photos regularly appear in the BV magazine. Sam Peters is an author and journalist who's written extensively on the subject of concussion injuries in rugby. I recently spoke to him remotely and I started by asking about his own interest in the game, which goes back many years. I apologise that the quality of the recording in places isn't quite as good as it could be. Yeah, I played it. Um, I watched it growing up. My dad used to sort of dangle me in a in a bouncer in the, the door frame as the Six Nations or Five Nations as it was in those days were played and watched on TV and went on to play it at school, club, university, played a bit for the army. So yeah, I played a, played a fair bit growing up and absolutely loved it. I still do. I think it's a fantastic game. Subsequently become a, a journalist and a writer and, and have written about it for the, about the last 20 years. So. Well, I was going to say, you spent quite a while as a news reporter. You were four years on the Mail on Sunday as their rugby correspondent, I believe, and then <laughs> two years with the Sunday Times. But more recently, you have written a book, Concussed Sports Uncomfortable truth and that of course mm. refers to the I suppose gathering debate in rugby about the issue of concussion particularly in younger mm. players tell us a little bit about the background how you came to be interested in that and what you think the the issues are uh, as soon as I started covering professional rugby in you know around 2003-2004 uh, I was pretty alarmed by the kind of injury landscape and the the severity and the frequency and the tolerance of injuries certainly was very, very different from the amateur game uh, that I'd experienced. I started to sort of look into the injury data. Uh, I started to also be very concerned about how often players were being clearly knocked unconscious or suffering brain injuries on the field and being allowed to return, even though the protocol stated they weren't meant to under any circumstances. It was it was obvious as the game sort of morphed from being an amateur game in the mid-90s to a professional game in the early 2000s, that there was a, a really significant problem. And there was another problem, which was that no one was prepared to write about it or very few people were prepared to sort of publicly voice the concerns a lot of us had in private. So, yeah, I, I took the decision that I thought it was really important to, to report it. Despite having grown up being a fan of the sport, I, I felt it was changing, going in a direction that wasn't healthy for the participants or the game more broadly. So from about 2013, I started writing specifically about concussion and really trying to hold the authorities to account for a lot of rhetoric around things like player welfare, which I thought was very little more than just rhetoric. And um, I've probably continued to do that for a bit longer than some people thought I would. And, and Concussed, the book, is uh, really a kind of 
culmination of 20 years work focusing on injuries and, and latterly on concussion in professional rugby predominantly. I'll confess I know little about rugby, having been forced to play it as a teenager at school. It appeared to me in those days to be a good opportunity for kids of, of that age to get out and beat seven bells out of each other, basically. But that's not obviously the the, the desired outcome of the game. Well, it's not, but it's really interesting that you say that, use that word forced to play. And I, I make the point repeatedly and have said this so many times. I think it's so wrong to force children to play rugby it's not for everyone uh, especially the contact element and I think what we're learning now is that the way to keep kids playing and involved and loving the sport is to delay the contact element of it and in and under no circumstances would I ever encourage a child to be forced to take a rugby field if they didn't want to it's just wrong uh, times were different back in the 30s. But, uh, anyway, <laughs> yes. it seems to me that the image of the game, though, over the years has developed into something of a fairly robust kind of pursuit, really. Are you getting any kickback from the, the purists who sort of say, well, you know, twas ever thus, it's supposed to be a, a physically mm. aggressive game and you're basically trying to ruin it? Yeah, um, loads of kickbacks, but I'd say I'd describe myself as a purist. You know, I, I know this sport inside out and I know the culture inside out and I know to a degree what it takes to required to take the field. And it hasn't always looked like this professional rugby. I'd say anybody who said that to me, I'd challenge them absolutely on all sorts of levels. The game is completely different to how it looked 30 years ago. It's always been a robust, tough sport. It's always been a game played by very brave people reckless people some would describe from time to time but the professional game has changed the injury risk profile to the sport and there is all sorts of data to support that which I call out in the book and have called out repeatedly you know this is an evidence-based argument to say that the game has never been more dangerous at a professional level and when you have an increased threat or a change threat smart people respond to that they don't just carry on going oh, it's always been like this, you know, you, the game's gone soft. That's just, that's not a helpful um, contribution to the conversation. I'm trying to protect the future of rugby. I love the sport to its core. I recognise that some people don't particularly want me talk, focusing on this, but, you know, uh, it's a path I'm on and I will continue to promote better education around concussion uh, more rigorous management and better management on the field and reducing the exposure overall exp to brain injuries, basically. And you mentioned a legal aspect to it. I, I believe there's currently a case by 300 former professional players. It's not clear against who, but that, that presumably they are alleging that the relevant authorities didn't take due care when they were younger in their playing days and they're suffering as a result. Is Is that... The fair summary? Yes, it's that's pretty much it, Terry. I mean, it's three, nearly 300 players now, ex-professionals and amateurs, pr predominantly professionals, who've alleged negligence against World Rugby, the RFU, um, and the WIU, the Welsh Rugby Union. I'm, well, I'm not surprised that this has happened. I was sort of calling it out early that the sport wasn't looking after its players properly. I believed it had got reckless in the way that it approached uh, the professional game was approaching concussion. And yeah, it's, it's sad for the game. I think it's something that I've warned about for quite a long time. If the sport didn't get its house in order, it was going to face problems. And yeah, it, it's facing a legal challenge now. I mean, I'm personally of the view that a lot of good could come out of that. I think there's going to be some law changes and changes to things like contact training and all sorts of other elements which the 
those involved in the lawsuit law case have, have called for. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm broadly supportive of, of that action, although, you know, not making any absolute statement on whether I think they'll be successful. But I think it's understandable. There's some really awful, tragic cases of uh, early onset dementia players in their 40s, younger than me, who've developed neurodegenerative problems, which are directly linked to head injuries they suffered when they were playing and mismanaged head injuries as well. And, um, you know, it was really what I was writing about 10, 15 years ago. Unfortunately, it's kind of come to fruition now. You describe the game now as looking a lot different than it was 30 years ago. Has the professionalism and the money that's been pumped into the game had a lot to do with that, would you say? Massive amount. I mean, a huge, huge amount. You could argue that rugby was never meant to be professionalised. You know, it's become this sort of industrial machine where players are bigger, stronger, faster than they've ever been. The demands on them are much greater than they've ever been. They're still being asked to play far too much rugby, the professional guys, the top players, and there's still far too many injuries in, in training. The American football, the NFL, went through this you know, 10, 11 years ago and quite quickly got its house in order in terms of reducing overall exposure and essentially giving informed consent or giving the opportunity for informed consent. And I think you know a lot of the stuff that's come out recently has been available and has been public for a long time but it just hasn't had the focus that it's getting now but it's a big challenge for the sport it's clear and present and happening now but yeah the, the money that's come in has placed a huge hugely different set of demands on the players and um and i think forced the sport down a path that's basically quite unhealthy uh, I guess you could argue the same about many other sports. But in terms of rugby, the the players of the future t- tend to be playing rugby, I guess, from a fairly early age. There was an event recently at Claysmore School, I believe, mm. specialising in evasion-based rugby. Tell us a little mm. bit more about that. Yeah, well, this was just a, a joyous morning that I spent at Claysmore School, which is a, a school that I hold dear because I used to actually come on um, summer trips uh, from my school in London down spent at Claysmore. So a parent of one of the lads there got in touch with me um, saying that Jerome Kano, who a lot of uh, rugby fans will know, he's a double World Cup winner, all, former All Black, one of the greatest players ever to walk the planet, was going to be coaching this Pierre Vilpra joy of movement, evasion skills, basically. It's a way of playing, a style of playing, which looks to avoid contact, looks to seek space on the field and really emphasises skills and spatial awareness over sort of brute force and power. And I think there's lots and lots of us in the, in the game that, would really celebrate a return to that. Lots of us believe that the game is far too physical, far too much emphasis placed on bulk and strength and force, which previously players were significantly smaller and the collisions on the pitch were significantly smaller and less frequent. So, yeah, I was hugely reassured by conversations I had with Joe Thompson, the head teacher at Claysmore, and other members of staff there, Richard Dixon and, and, and several others who were just seem to be completely bought into this idea that they love the sport of rugby, they recognise there's a problem and now they want to find solutions. And more and more since the Concussed book has come out, schools in particular have been in touch with me saying what a kind of breath of fresh air it has been to actually read what is a tough book. It's not easy. There's lots of challenging stories in there and, um, you know, really upsetting stories. But notwithstanding that, there's this sort of recognition that my deep love of the game is driving me telling these stories and those of us who want to see the game um, healthy and flourishing in 20 years time recognize that we need to come together and 
essentially find a different way, find a way that we can depower the sport and uh, essentially go back to a time where space and skill and evasion were prized above power. And yeah, that's what we saw that morning at Claysmore. There were lots of schools involved. Bath uh, Academy were there as well, as were Toulouse Academy. And I believe that's just one school of many that are really looking at this very seriously and very intelligently, and I totally support it. It sounds like you're gaining ground and gaining supporters for this approach, but ultimately it will be the controlling authorities of the game that have to buy into it. What's your sense on that? Are they making the right noises or are you not so encouraged? They're making the right noises, but whether or not the right noises turn into actions is another thing entirely. I'm definitely convinced that they've seen that things need to change. I'm definitely convinced that they recognise that contact rugby is not for everyone and that there needs to be more of an emphasis put on skills and um, non-contact forms of the game. And I would completely support that. It's something that New Zealand, who are the best rugby nation on the planet have done for years so there's no reason this actually needs to have a negative impact on the quality in fact i'd argue for years it will have a beneficial impact on the quality of the english national team so yeah it feels like there's some movement some traction uh, i've definitely been hugely heartened by the reception the books had and the conversations i'm now having with people deeply involved in the game rooted in the game who want to change it for the better Sam, it sounds like a really noble cause and it sounds like you're really doing something that's going to make a difference and minimise the risk of people suffering these injuries in in the future, way down the track, things that uh, aren't really seen when they're enjoying the game at the age of 15 or 20 or whatever. And incidentally, your your book has, has obviously made an impact. It was shortlisted for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year 2023. So congratulations yep. on that. And, Thank you. Uh, yeah, that was a lovely moment. Yeah, uh, we wish you well with your campaign. Terry, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, keep playing rugby, but play safely. Richard Miles is the Dark Skies Advisor for Dorset CPRE. He has reasonably dark skies over Cernabus, where he lives. He says he's a stargazer and goes up to gaze at the night skies with a couple of friends above the Cern Giant every month or two. His interest started when he was a boy. He and his brother turned an old hen run into an observatory. In his recent BV magazine article, Richard theorised that the Blackmore Vale possibly gets its name from the time when the Vale was dark with forests, and also to it being a reference to moorland, dark moor or dark swamp. When you look at place names or names of things around, um, often you have to go to the Old English, which is sort of a mix of Anglo-Saxon and even Celtic language. And um, so it, it sometimes gives us the origin so the, the more is the thing. It just means an area that tends to get um, swampy or wet and it's difficult to manage. So the, the Celtic people used to have field systems on hills. They never had them where we farmers these days have fields. And of course the Blackmore Vale has a lot of Oxford clay in it. So to grow crops there is very difficult and uh, it's mainly for uh, dairy course and so the the field systems of the Celts used to be up on the hills where it was actually easier for them to uh, to cultivate there yeah so that's so the moor is 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 an area that's 
difficult to drain. Even at the top of Cern Valley here, there's a little bit of more just where the, the sheep graze and it would be impossible to grow anything there. Yeah. The Blackmoor Vale is really fascinating because most of the habitation is around the edges, uh, places like uh, Stalbridge, Henstridge, um, even Long Burton is part of it. And it's because it, it lies on, not clay, but it lies on a seam of what's called cornbrush, which is much easier to till. It drains well and it, it, it does hold some water easily. And so over the, over the centuries, people have tried to eke out a living down in the Vale, growing crops and having hamlets, but the hamlets have come and gone. And all those villages now are all have been there since Anglo-Saxon times. They're all on this this the edge of the of the Blackmoor Vale, which is rather like the old field systems of the Celts that used to be on the edge of hills. So yeah. It's uh, got quite a history. So and the black, of course, the black is what <laughs> what sort of attracted me from being the Dark Skies advisor and having had an observatory. It was registered with the International Astronomical Union. So you have to uh, apply for that and, and demonstrate that you can make observations accurately. And um, myself and another chap who lives in Lidlin Suite, we've both got um, codes for our observatories and we used to report... Oh, I used to report the observations from there. So we had really dark skies uh, and just um, right in the middle of the Blackmore Valley, it actually is quite dark. It's just that it's bordered at the uh, in the northern part by Sherbourne, Milbourne Port, Wincanton, um, Gillingham. But south of that, the Blackmore Vale has maintained reasonably dark skies. I think I commented that I felt that it was get, it was getting worse, the light pollution. And um, one of the things I'll do, uh, I'll look back at my old, um, my old observations and I can, actually, I can actually extract out of those a measurement of how dark the sky was, obviously when the moon is out, out of the way. But I'll be able to go back and just quantify quite accurately what the sky was doing over the 15 years I operated there. And it might, have, it might show, actually, I don't know, we'll see, but it might show it's not too bad in the sense that it's been fairly static. When I was first there, one of the, the big light polluters was the road between Sherbourne and Yeovil because they had the old-fashioned sodium lights on very tall uh, lampstands. And... Um, I could see I could see from certain corners seven miles away the the light reflecting off off the mist and so on from those actual sodium lights and they were replaced with full full cut off lights and since then there's been actually a, a reduction in light pollution from that direction. Our night skies are increasingly illuminated by bright lights, aren't they? Yeah, it's um, it's almost impossible uh, to arrested but what what you can do and one of the good things is that if people can switch off their lights say after midnight especially it's it's you know we call it a curfew and curfews have always been around in time for various reasons and um, it's it's good to have the light when you need it but if people are asleep and there's nobody there there's no real sense in wasting energy even uh, sometimes they used to have the lights on and they used to say it was a, 
it helped the electricity generation because it sort of kept a base low during the night time. But now, you know, life has changed completely and it's changing faster than ever, I'd say, in that people will need to charge their electric vehicles. A lot of people even have storage batteries for electricity and they can drain the electricity from the generating grid, from wind farms and so on, without having to leave lights on all night. So that's one of the, the best ways, actually. OK, but, but the sky might not be dark in the early evening, but if in the middle of the night, if it's dark, then the creatures and the, the animals and the birds have that benefit then. You're talking, uh, Richard, about domestic lighting, but of course, it's the street lights that stay on all night and create a lot of pollution, isn't it? Well, you'd be surprised, actually. That's one of the moves that's depending on the councils in the area. Dorchester, for example, I was coming back from London one one uh, late late evening and I was surprised to find I'd got there at half midnight because of the delays in the trains and there were the lights were off the, the street lights in in the suburb areas of Dorchester were all off it actually is quite quite sensible for local authorities to to turn the lights off in the suburban areas and some even some motorways and so on have done experiments with turning the lights off and some of them have, have, have actually adopted that for certain of the early hours of the, the morning. One thing people don't really talk about is the effect on the quality of people's sleep from these very bright LED street and other lights. Well of course it depends on the area. If you live in a city it's it's almost impossible to escape the light but most of the Blackmore Vale area actually isn't even an urban district. It's rural or semi-rural. And um, the situation there is that people generally, uh, you know, expect it to go dark <laughs> when they draw their curtains and switch their lights off and they, they, they want to go to sleep. I don't, I don't know about you, but personally, I've always been very sensitive to the arrival of dawn. And so when, as the light starts to pick up in the um, early morning, I quite often can wake at just that point in time when the light is just just starting to rise and um, it sort of works in the opposite sense if you're trying to get to sleep uh, potentially. So one of the rules you know about street lights in sub suburbs is to um, people shouldn't have lights directed straight into their bedroom windows because not everybody has curtains with sort of full cut off of the light, in fact most people don't. We don't have to operate a blackout like during the war. So light coming in through a bedroom window is particularly uh, disturbing. In your article in the BV magazine, Richard, you did touch on the detrimental effect of bright white LED lights on our wildlife. That's a, an in increasingly interesting area because more and more is being discovered about it. It's, you know, we haven't looked at that in the past and it's only by looking we find that, you know, something is happening. And certainly, I think one of the earliest effects of that was reduction in insects and moths flying. For various reasons, you know, they're much less common now, but one of them was that they, they were attracted to lights and we used to see moths and, and that congregating around street lights. That was a common sight and you, never, you really don't see it now. So whether or not they've evolved so that they don't respond because you know unfortunately 
things in the wild have taken many thousands and maybe millions of years to evolve to what they are. And it was in a situation where there were no artificial lights. And the thing about insects is they're particularly sensitive to the blue or the ultraviolet light. And um, that will put them off the scent of, the, of their no, normal activity. And um, of course, some, some of the lights would eventually um, kill them. And they, you'd see, you know, the, the remains of the insects at the, at the foot of the, uh, the, the lampstand. Now, the, the other area is, is this problem about blue lights and LEDs. What they did is they, they wanted to make them more and more what they thought to be like natural light. And sunlight has a certain amount of blue light in it. That's what makes light appear white. And so even though people have used yellow headlamps for many, many years, and I lived in France for a few years, and that their headlights are actually more yellow than, than the British ones. I rather like them. They, they seem to work particularly well in, in fog and misty conditions, um, which, which made sense. I, I used to be a scientist, so... I, I, have, I have that sort of insight into it. And yellow lights are actually quite effective in, 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 in use in vehicles. And of course they're yellow because there's much less blue light in, in the spectrum. So coming back to the natural world, people might say, well, the moon is out many, many nights. And so uh, the creatures don't have dark skies all the time. But one, one thing about the moon is that it, when it reflects the light of the sun, it actually removes a little bit of the blue light that's present there. So the moonlight is not quite the same colour as sunlight. And what's happened with motor manufacturers is they've seemed to want to aspire to having very white light. So there are a couple of different types of new headlight. One's an LED based and the other is what's called a high intensity discharge light. They both have this a strong blue light contribution but some are worse than others i've only come across this in the last couple of years people have talked to me you know they didn't know i was a dog skies advisor that they were complaining about driving and about the fact that they were for some reason you know oncoming cars especially the newer cars were, were dazzling and blinding them making it difficult to see the road ahead it comes down to a change in the law that uh, happened uh, in 2019 that the European directive, I think they call it, um, was to do away with yellow headlamps. <laughs> Surprised the French agreed to it because it was, it was very much a, you know, a French characteristic, one I, I, I liked actually. They have got, gone to great lengths to stipulate you know, how white light is defined but they haven't taken any notice, really, of the effect on other road users. The motor manufacturers and the, and the headlight manufacturers um, like it because they can sell more. And what they somehow have convinced the governments to do is to allow much brighter lights in headlights. And so this is one of the, the difficult balances in health and safety, is that you can improve the, the safety for one user but at the detriment of someone else or at the detriment of nature. And um, I think that's what's been happening in the recent years is that, OK, it's safer to have brighter headlights because you can see what's ahead. But think what effect it has on animals and on the other road users. Any blue light in a headlight 
causes the extra glare. And that was rather disappointing when I went through the European Directive, the, the document, which is a very long document about the new rules in 2019. There was no mention of the two most important things, either the intensity of the light, there was no control really on the intensity of the light, and there's no appreciation or uh, limit put on the amount of glare that could arise. Nobody measures that. And I suspect that over the coming years, it will gradually dawn on them that there is, there's, a, you know, that new technology has brought in an unexpected consequence, and that's this business of having this difficulty in being able to see the road ahead because the oncoming vehicle is, has got two brighter lights and two blue light. And just because they can't quantify it at the moment doesn't mean it's not happening. And this is an issue that may need addressing, given the potential for road accidents where a driver has been blinded by oncoming bright headlights or didn't see the yawning pothole looming up in front of them. Older people whose eyes have deteriorated are, of course, particularly sensitive. That was Richard Miles, who's the Dark Skies advisor to the Dorset CPRE, the campaign to protect rural England. Generations of Care. Tracy Beardsley meets a fourth-generation funeral director and discovers what it's like to have a job that can be a conversation starter or a fast finisher. In 1897, in the small village of Broad Windsor, carpenters and gate makers Arthur and Ernie Wakeley turned their skills to making coffins. Arthur's son Jack helped his father and uncle in the family business, and with an entrepreneurial eye, he purchased a small funeral business in Bridport. Fast forward more than 120 years, and that funeral business has burgeoned into 13 offices, covering an area from Sidmouth to Wincanton. Jack's grandson, Richard Wakeley, is the fourth-generation funeral director to join A.J. Wakeley & Sons. Richard says, "'It wasn't my plan to come into the family business.' My dad, Clive, a director in the firm, never pushed me or my three sisters. It wasn't like TV's succession. Dad wanted it to be a natural progression. This is more of a vocation than an actual job. You've got to want to do it. After leaving school, Richard worked in the Philippines for the charity Mercy in Action. That experience was life-changing for me, he says. I grew up so much in three years. Working in the charity's homes for vulnerable children in the Philippines... Richard ran a summer programme for street kids and a drop-in centre for orphans. We'd feed them and give them a basic education. A keen sportsman, Richard spent time going into the community and playing basketball with the kids. This success led him to run an after-school programme as a full-time job. A lot of the kids had no electricity in the evening and were doing their homework by candlelight. Opening the day centre at night gave them a safe space to study. Returning home, a casual chat while walking along the beach with his dad led him to joining the family business aged 21. Richard began learning the ropes as a general employee. He worked on the fixtures and fittings of coffins, having inherited his great-grandfather's craft skills, and he shadowed experienced funeral director Matthew Patterson. Richard juggled working with studying for his funeral director's diploma. Incredibly, you don't legally need any qualifications to be a funeral director. It's scary to think anyone can set up without the right facilities, knowledge or empathy that this work requires. Hopefully regulations will be coming in soon. After nine years, Richard now runs two of the Wakeley offices. Our motto is, we will say yes and then work out how to do it. 
If a family wants it done and it's legal, we'll find a way. This includes unusual requests. Richard researched if a lady could keep her husband's skeleton hanging in her office. She couldn't. He's also been asked to dress down in shorts and T-shirt rather than the usual funeral attire of tail-coated suit. The taboo of talking about death has changed. People are keener to organise their own funeral and take the burden off loved ones. People want a personal touch. We now have a Land Rover Defender converted into a hearse for funerals on private land. Sometimes it's just in a field with hay bales for the mourners. What is the reaction when Richard says what he does for a living? I always say it's either a conversation starter or finisher. Some people are surprised and hesitant, not wanting to know any more. Others ask questions, and lots of them. Richard's faith helps him handle the emotions of dealing with death every day. Praying through things really helps. My wife Emily is also a fantastic support, and as soon as I walk through the door, I'm bowled over by two young children and a baby. Work goes to one side for family time, and that helps a lot. Organising a funeral for a baby or child is the toughest part of his job. You always feel for the parents. Also, I'm always struck by non-attended funerals where the deceased has outlived all friends and relations, so there are no mourners. You become the congregation, and when you hear about their incredible lives, it's very moving. I remember one chap who'd been a spy gathering intel during the Second World War. We're coming to the end of that generation. Such heroic stories will be buried forever. I'm very privileged to hear some of them. Quickfire questions. Top dinner party guests. My rugby heroes, Johnny Wilkinson and Dan Carter. Jesus would be cool. And my great-grandfather, so I could thank him for starting the business. Book by your bedside? Imagine Heaven by John Burke. Rob Nolan is someone else who appreciates dark skies. He's the astrophotographer whose amazing photos of the wonders of space appear in the BV magazine. He lives in what may be one of the best parts of Dorset for good night skies, when they aren't obscured by cloud. He and his wife live roughly halfway between Sherborne and Dorchester. We're very fortunate in Dorset. If you live between, as we do, you know, sort of around 10 miles between Sherborne and uh, and Sturminster Newton and Dorchester, it's, uh, it's an extremely dark sky. Um, one of the darkest in Dorset, which is quite nice. So, uh, yeah, we get some... When there's no clouds, we get some lovely clear skies. <laughs> yes, it's the clouds. <laughs> now, yours is a, yours is a, is a very special, a, a very special type of photography, isn't it? And, and very specialised. Yes, astrophotography is one of those um, one of those kind of specialist niche photography um, kind of hobbies, I guess. Um, I started in um, kind of landscape photography, which is obviously taken up by a lot more people. And uh, yeah, during lockdown, couldn't go anywhere, so uh, looked up at the sky and thought, oh, I can start taking photos of the of the universe above me. That's infinite, and I don't have to worry about being, you know breaking any rules during covid so i was able to start looking up and yeah just you can do it with relatively simple equipment or like me you can start to to get more specialist equipment for it but um yeah no it's a bit more niche but there's a lot more people doing it now where everyone's able to to get access to the the sort of the the right tools um and the right kind of cameras now everything's a little bit more easily accessible and the software to to actually produce these images as well so and, and talking of all that, Rob, I imagine that every time something new comes along, you think, oh, I must have that. <laughs> so, so your equipment gets more and more um, substantial. 
Yes, no, absolutely. It's one of those things. It's uh, like with most sort of photography, um, it's ever evolving, it's ever changing. We always want the best tools for the job, and there's always something, something else to spend your money on. So yeah, you do have to uh, have to be a bit careful sometimes, and make sure you're uh, you're not going too crazy with it. And uh, otherwise, the the partner can sometimes be a little bit upset as to how much a hobby might cost. <laughs> yes, because unless you have a bottomless pocket. <laughs> Yes, no, absolutely. But as I said, you don't have to, you know, it's not a case of having to have the best gear to, to take amazing photos. You know, people can literally go into their back gardens and just with a tripod and a fairly long lens and normal standard DSLR camera, you can start taking photos of the night sky quite easily. Um, and it's, yeah, it's amazing what you can see just by doing a, a 30 second exposure or less of, uh, of a certain part of the sky, you'll still get lots of detail and start to see some of these amazing like nebulas and, and galaxies that, uh, that are sort of millions of light years away from us. I'm guessing, Rob, that one essential piece of equipment, though, is patience. Yes, absolutely. If you go into this with the the idea of trying to capture the sorts of images that I display on my article, you do need a, a certain amount of patience to do that. Um, you need to be able to capture data over potentially a number of different nights because not every night is clear the entire night. You might get a few hours here and there on a particular night and then have to wait another week until you can start acquiring the rest of the data you need. Um, so yes, patience and also the, the processing patience as well, because again, it, it's not like a, a standard photo of a, a nice sunset or a, a sunrise where you can just tweak a few settings and the, the photo's done in, in Photoshop or in Adobe Lightroom. It's a case of, yeah, really working on the image and bringing out all of the details that are hidden within those initial initial exposures that you take. So getting it in the shot rather than uh, doctoring it uh, on your computer afterwards, you mean? Yes, no, exactly. It's a bit of both. I mean, a lot of people, um, there's a lot of controversy around kind of astrophotography. Some people say it's it's not what you see with the, with the naked eye, which um, is absolutely true. It's not because if you look in the night sky, you know, our eyes don't have the aperture to, to see into the, the darkness of, of space and all the, the dim light that's up there. But if you put a camera on it and you do these long exposures of sometimes I take take exposures of five minutes or more um, between shots. So it, it really is a case of you're trying to get all of the light coming into the, the camera and then you're processing a number of different images together to create all of that overall detail. Yeah, it's a very, very different um, kind of photography than just taking one photo and, and all the detail is essentially there in that one image. You have to do lots of different images and then put them all together and that's what gives you that final kind of amazing detail that, that we can reveal and, and and of course if you're rob if you're taking those uh, shots um sometimes days or even a week or more apart i, I assume you, ha you have your tripod and your camera uh, in exactly the same place to the millimeter and you have to go out at the same time um, well, it depends on what target you're shooting. If you're using uh, what, which is what I do, an equatorial mount, which essentially it compensates for the Earth's rotation. So what it does is it, it points at a particular point in the sky. If you aim at a particular target, it will um, negate that rotation of the Earth so that you can keep that target pinpointed in your in your view 
all the way through the night until it disappears under the horizon. Um, so you can literally shoot a target for most of the night, depending on where it is in the night sky. And then you can literally go back, you know, another night. As long as you set up and we do something called polar alignment when we do a, a when we do shooting with an equatorial mount or when we use a, a telescope with an equatorial mount. Um, so you are getting into the same position all, every time that you shoot. If you are using a tripod, um, it is a little bit different because you're not allowing for any kind of compensation of that earth rotation so you will have to manually track the target that you're looking for and it will eventually if you just leave the target the um, the tripod in one place and the camera in one place the target will very quickly disappear from your view so it is a a little bit more difficult if you don't have some of that uh, that electronic gear in terms of that equatorial mount that can track the night sky objects for you and, and initially rob was there plenty of trial and error Oh, yes. No, absolutely. Like most people, when I first got into astronomy, I bought a, a relatively simple um, equatorial mount that didn't have any computer um, kind of equipment or, or capability. So you had to manually find your target. I had a nice big scope that gave me amazing views of, uh, of the night sky, but I could never find anything. And what we tend to do when we get to that stage is you try and find something in the sky and then you end up just looking at the moon because it's very easy to find in the sky and you can easily look at the details. Um, so yeah, so I quickly progressed from that onto a, a computerized mount, which enabled me to be able to find targets a little bit more easily. Uh, I'd love to say that I've spent, you know, years and years perfecting my astronomy skills to be able to find everything in the sky by eye, but I just, I haven't been able to do that, I'm afraid. So sometimes computers do allow us to cheat a little bit. And, and, and allow you to get a bit more sleep too, maybe. Well, yes, absolutely. It is quite nice to be able to uh, to be able to leave everything running in the in the in the garden and just uh, yeah go and get some sleep because we all do have to work the next day and it's not a valid excuse to say oh I was up all night shooting the the universe um, just because I'm a little bit more tired. So uh, so yeah, it's it's good to be able to do that as well. And again, it maximises the amount of data that we can get. I I I, uh, I also I assume Rob that you keep well abreast of every forthcoming stellar or night sky event. Absolutely, we do try and kind of understand what's going on um, and what's coming along in the in the near future because you know we want to be able to try and capture certain events. NASA is obviously a very good place to to understand what's going on and when. Um, but also the community. So I'm, I'm a part of several different astronomy groups on Facebook and we all kind of group together and we all know what's going to happen next in terms of upcoming events. So, for example, in March, there's a, a, a potential for a, a comet that's going to go past us that may actually become visible to the naked eye, a little bit like Comet Neowise did back in 2020. Um, so that would be really exciting if we can get to see that and also try and train our um, telescopes onto it to actually photograph it as it goes past. You know, you must feel really frustrated when there's an event that you, you would like to photograph and you plan to photograph it and bingo, the skies are covered in clouds. So I, I'm guessing there must be times when you wish that you lived in a, in a desert area somewhere where you could pretty much guarantee no cloud. Absolutely. I've said to my wife on countless occasions we should move to the Atacama Desert because it's very high up. It's very clear skies, although it barely rains. But yeah, there are times. I mean, there was an eclipse uh, a couple of years ago that I really wanted to set up for. Um, or it was a partial eclipse um, and I was working during the day so I knew I wasn't going to be able to actually set up for it and kind of you know go and look for it properly so there was cloud 
and there was lots of cloud coming in and, and just between clouds there was a little bit of a glimpse of it so I did just set up a camera just pointing out of my bedroom window actually and just left it running and actually I did manage to get a few photographs of it, it wasn't the best quality but I was still happy that I was able to capture the event so yeah sometimes it is it is a luck of the draw in terms of the weather more frequently than not it works against us but sometimes we do get do get that chance of, of seeing something really amazing you know, you mentioned the Atacama, but <laughs> you might not have been completely lucky there because I understand that um, they have a, a, a mist that comes in off the sea. Mm, no, that's very true. Yes, they do. Absolutely. <laughs> you might not get your clear skies there. <laughs> in in uh, this month's BV uh, magazine, Rob, you've got the most astonishing and really beautiful photo of the Orion Nebula's trapezium. So the Orion Nebula is one of the, the closest nebulas that we can observe. It's one of the most scientifically observed nebula in our night sky because of its proximity to Earth. Um, I think it's around about 1,350 light years away, which in interstellar terms is very close to us. And it's one of my nemesis images, actually, in terms of objects to photograph, because I've tried to photograph it every winter for the past three years and never been really that happy with the outcome. It's always been a case of the the core of the, the nebula is a little bit overexposed or I haven't managed to capture the, the gas and the detail that I've wanted. But this year, I'm actually very happy with that particular image. It took a lot of work. Um, to get that over a few nights and I had to shoot different exposures to make sure that the core of the nebula wasn't blown out because it's a frequent thing that happens when you take photographs of this particular object is you'll get lovely kind of background detail and, and images of the uh, of the whole cloud cluster in the nebula but you won't get the core the core will just be completely blown out um, but yeah essentially the, the core of the nebula is called the trapezium and um, because of its lots of gases is kind of in that area of the of the nebula it's causing a lot of new star formation so you can actually see stars being born um, in that nebula today it's incredible to kind of look at and that's why it's one of the most closely studied nebulas in our night sky wonderful and and so your your daytime job is 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 it wedding photography no no so my my part-time photography is is very much that it's uh, still a part-time thing i do some corporate work here and there um but i don't do weddings anymore i did those for a good few years and it was lovely to to capture the moments of people getting married and, and obviously everyone in, in joining in for that celebration um, but no my day job is very different to uh, to my hobby I'm actually a pre-sales technical consultant for a, a large public sector software firm so it's very very different to uh, to my hobby very different indeed yes fabulous photos they are just they're just so beautiful you know oh, do, you, do, are they colored like that you don't add the colors do you no, no. Well, essentially, because the, the camera can pick up all the different wavelengths of light, um, what we do is we're just enhancing what's there. So when you look at this in the night sky with your naked eye, what you tend to see is basically grey and fuzzy. Because, again, we just don't we don't have the capacity in our own eyes to be able to, to see the colours coming through. With the emission nebulas, which is a little bit different to the um, reflection nebulas, which is what the Orion image is, we are adding a little bit of colour in a way because we're essentially we're photographing invisible colours of light in, in wavelengths that we can't see. So it's um, oxygen and also 
hydrogen and sulfur and what we do is we basically we map those to colors that we can see so red green and blue basically so you end up with these quite amazing colors that are, uh, are not really what you would see because what you would actually see is probably something that's just red because it's hydrogen is pretty much the only gas that we can see in a visible wavelength so we're adding the color in so that you can see what the the nebula is actually made up of so it's a little bit different and you can have different palettes to show off different things so it's a little bit of artistic flair but it's just revealing the detail of what is what is actually in that particular nebula that was regular bv magazine contributor talented photographer rob nolan well that's it for the second episode of the february bvm podcast we hope you've enjoyed it and will join us again next month until then it's goodbye from me terry bennett and goodbye from me jenny devitt Thank you.